Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I am a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild and just a bunch of stuff. So uh, this is Dr. John Mike. I'm an assistant professor in exercise science. Um, I like to eat. I like to lift. I like to take up a lot of space. And uh, my... Dissertation, um, the effects of eccentric contraction duration on max strength, power, vertical jump, and soreness, uh, has been recently accepted into Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research for the NSAA, and uh, I'll be speaking at the NSAA Personal Trainer Conference next week in Jacksonville, Florida. Hopefully it won't get canceled because of the uh, hurricane, (laughs) so um, aside from that, it's uh, nice to be on. And then joining us today that we're going to get to, we got Kaylee Hostchild. I hope I didn't butcher your last name. No, uh, you're right. And uh, we're going to get to Kaylee here in a little bit. Lonnie's got some news, but basically she is a former athlete and current athlete, sprinter, new strength coach, all the above. So, Lonnie, what do you got for us today, news? Cool stuff. Um, I have two listener mails and one bit of news. Also, let me get the news out of the way first because there's only one. I just saw this this morning, having my coffee. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is about glycemic index, so let me just set this up. Uh, It says, this is from an editor, this isn't from the journal itself, I went and pulled the study, but it says blood sugar, or blood glucose, increases every time we eat, and it decreases while we sleep, but the body typically goes to great lengths to maintain you know, glucose concentrations in the healthy range. Some people, however, have difficulty keeping blood sugar in the healthy range and may develop uh, type 2 diabetes as a result. To help regulate blood sugar, some people choose foods with a, quote, low glycemic index, close quote, uh, because these foods are thought to trigger less severe blood sugar spikes. However, a new study provides convincing evidence that a food's published glycemic index may not be very helpful in this regard after all. So this, if listeners are familiar, uh, low glycemic foods, you know, things that have soluble fiber, I mean, oats, apples, things of that nature, uh, they don't raise your blood sugar very much. I've actually measured this in the lab before with students. So you could give someone a really fast-acting carbohydrate like a brown-skinned potato or white bread, and their blood sugar will jump up from, you know, fasting values around 80 to like, you know, 130, 140. Uh, I've seen lifters even go higher than that when they were sore, actually, because I think their, their muscles are a little sore and resistant. But... Um, on the flip side, really, a lot of people rely on this stuff. So let me read the paper here. The paper is by Matan or Mathan and colleagues. Uh, it's brand new from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and I mean brand new. It's called Estimating the Reliability 
of glycemic index values and potential sources of methodological or biological variability. Uh, a, the background says the utility of the glycemic index values for chronic disease management remains controversial. And then it goes on to say there is a dearth of information, I love that word, uh, on the reliability of glycemic index values uh, and potential sources of variability in healthy adults. So we examined the intra, right, so within one person and inter-individual or across people, variability of the glycemic response. They looked at straight glucose and white bread. So they're looking at things that really swing your blood sugar. They gave them 50 grams, and they did serum glucose and insulin monitoring for five hours, which is uh, longer than usual. Uh, usually these oral glucose challenges are about two hours, so they're being very thorough. They did different types of calculations, area under the curve, all these different things. Here's what they found. The mean uh, and standard deviation of the glycemic values for white bread was 62 plus or minus 15. So again, listeners, think about this on a 100 scale if you're not familiar. Law-abiding, you know, non-speedy carbohydrates like beans, they chug along. They, their glycemic index is going to be like 20, right? White bread is usually considered very high. If things are over 70, it's considered a very high glycemic index. So here they've got, you know, just the variability. So it's 62 plus or minus 15, it says even inter-individual, so again, within the same person, their, their coefficient of variation, the uh, up and down percentage, was 20 to 25%. Uh, so that doesn't bode very well. If, if you believe those glycemic index tables, uh, it's just saying part of this is biological variability. So maybe your stress hormone's a little higher today. Maybe you slept more poorly. You get the idea. There's a lot of things that go into this. Uh, it says, among the biological factors assessed, insulin index and glycated hemoglobin, so that's more of a long-term test for how good your blood sugar is controlled, uh, explained about 15% of the variability in people's different, you know, daily differences to glycemic index. Conclusion, these data indicate that there is substantial variability in individual responses to GI value tables. So... There it is. I don't know. Maybe that's bad news for some people. I don't think it's bad if you're ballparking, right? Remembering things like oats and apples and beans are lower glycemic and things like cornflakes are way higher, you know. But it, it varies quite a bit. It looks like it varies quite a bit. So uh, there's uh, some websites that are resources for this, like Mendoza.com. It's just phonetic, M-E-N-D-O-S-A. He has access to all kinds of government databases on glycemic index. And for the longest time, I thought that was very helpful. And it is handy. But I think we shouldn't obsess over it. And this new paper says so. I mean, don't obsess over those numbers like they're exact. Um, I don't know. Maybe we're just back to focusing on stuff that's less processed. You know, I mean, eat the potato, not the French fry kind of thing. You know? Yeah. Uh, I have two, two questions and everybody jump in on these. The first one is something I think that slowly Phil and Rob and I developed over the first couple of years of this podcast. Uh, not created, but I think we refined it. It's, it's about holding a body weight, uh, a new body weight. But 
Mm-hmm. He says, hey, thanks so much for all you do. I found the podcast several months ago, and I've just finished all the back episodes. I especially learned a lot about what it takes to gain size. I've been five foot seven, 155 since high school. I'm 24 now, so I recently and painfully upped my intake to about 4,000 calories per day, and now I sit at 175. Pretty good. Um, I thought maybe you could clarify something for me. There's always been a lot of interest in the holy grail of gaining muscle and losing fat simultaneously, and I understand both as an athlete and as a scientist, I'm a chemist, that this generally doesn't work. But on the show... You often advocate the idea of gaining some weight of questionable composition, then holding the higher body weight and allowing the body to quote unquote recompose. Is this not essentially gaining muscle while losing fat? Is there something special about doing this at a higher body weight instead of trying to do it at a lower body weight that makes it more feasible? I'm interested in your thoughts. Keep up the good work, Cody. I'll hit on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, essentially, you're doing it in a calorie surplus, not a calorie, uh, you know, with excess calories, not trying to do it while you're cutting calories. So basically, you're, you're, you were at this excess that now slowly became maintenance. Um, but most people, when they're trying to do this, they're trying to do it when their calories are, are lower than, than maintenance level, which makes it pretty much impossible. Um, Agreed. Really hard without the, without the use of, you know, pharmaceutical drugs yeah yeah so yeah. that that's the biggest thing i mean you're basically you you're you're eating fuel and you've created an extra fuel source that your body carries around as well so right you're, you're able to slowly uh, mind you recompose a bit i i to reiterate what you said in a slightly different way is yeah this is not simultaneous you know, you, you, you're not trying to gain muscle and lose fat on, you know, like 2,500 calories a day or 3,000 calories a day. Some rank beginners can actually do that because they're so unadapted. They're so completely blank slate <laughs> that, you know, anything they do is going to improve them in some way. They're going to get some adaptations. But the idea here is, yeah, you eat, like Phil said, above calorie needs, so it's surplus but once you reach that new body weight, that is now a maintenance calorie for you. Now, this is all ballpark, of course, because metabolism changes you know, up and down and whatnot. But the idea, and again, this is, this is sort of theoretical, and it's important for a chemist to understand this. I cannot point to specific papers. This is just something I think Phil and I have seen in different settings, right, either from a nutritionist mm-hmm. or a strength coach. Um, at some point over many months – your body weight set point will change. And then your if you continue to lift heavy, because presumably you can move bigger weights because you're a bigger person, right, that you will continue to gain muscle mass at that bigger size. I can't tell you this is because of – point to something in your leptin system, you know, or something in your hypothalamus or pituitary that's governing your set point. Right. Normally, about 10 percent above or below your set point, you have a lot of pressures in your body, a lot of homeostatic mechanisms that are trying to drive you back to where you were. It's that 10 percent number is you could point to textbooks and literature on that. So and that's about where you are, buddy. So that you have to be careful. 
And I just think it's wiser to try to hold that new, you know, you put on the 20 pounds like you've done, hold it for several months, move some bigger weights, keep the calories higher than when you were smaller, and then your body, you will have those adaptations. But don't think Mm -hmm. about this as simultaneous. It's really not. You're just trying to move some bigger weights as a bigger man. And then hopefully over a, a couple of months or to several months, we don't know how long this is or even how well this this works necessarily uh, in the literature. You're better off, you know, in the end, like Phil said, instead of trying to eat a fairly low calorie diet and somehow gain muscle, because that's not going to work very well. Mm-hmm. So um, I have one more. This one, uh, and maybe Dr. Mike can chime in on this one. This is from John in Wisconsin. A 53-year-old male asks about sarcopenia. So he doesn't want to start to lose muscle tissue as he ages, but he was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, AFib, during uh, a great powerlifting program, it says. Can you give advice on lifting with heart issues? Doctors' orders are to lose weight and only lift light weights. How do I grow muscle under those conditions? Wow, uh, that's a really good question. The the first thing I would definitely say is, you know, definitely want to talk to your, uh, you know, primary care physician, your cardiologist for, you know, a little bit more specific guidelines just because, you know, we're not, um, you know, medical doctors on the show that specialize in these types of issues. But we can certainly give some some guidelines. There's some interesting stuff out there. And and, um, what I could find is cardiovascular diseases, all those types of things. It's always a lot more heavy uh, in terms of the research and science on the endurance side, on the aerobic side, than it is resistance training. Um, and just to give you an example, that that used to be the the, the heavy case with people that have uh, type two diabetes, but you know over the course of time, actually resistance training is typically even better um, for those that have type two diabetes. But typically, for those for that AFib, um, typically, I mean, you can you can train aerobically, you know, three or five days a week. There's uh, some guidelines about training anywhere from, you know, maybe 75 to 95 percent of, you know, your peak heart rate frequency is about 120 minutes um, to 200 minutes per week. A combination of aerobic and endurance exercise. Um, There doesn't seem to be any particular, like really specific guidelines for the resistance training part. And one study was talking about how there's no particular weight limit for proper exercise safety um, in terms of resistance training exercise. But, you know, make sure you can lift the weights, you know, comfortably. I mean, I I know that's really vague, but, um, you know, to kind of go back to your question in terms of like sarcopenia um, with the age-related muscle loss, I mean, you do need to lift a fairly heavier load. And I'm not saying you need to do like, you know, a max, you know, one rep maxes all the time. But I would even go so far as to actually, we've talked about this on the show a lot, is eccentric exercise. Um, because eccentric exercise, it doesn't weigh the burden of accumulative fatigue and it doesn't have as much O2 cost, um, has a less energy yield to be able to do the exercises um, versus concentric uh, movements. And so I would start incorporating eccentric exercise because you can use a heavier load without the cumulative fatigue. Um, and, and you'll just have to kind of see how that really works. I mean, yes, I think you can do just normal, um, even machines, 
Uh, most machines kind of um, help with accommodating the strength curve. I mean, yes, they're in sagittal plane, but a combination of like free weights and, you know, machines, because even though you have that type of condition, um, you definitely want to put on um, or maintain as much lean body mass, you know, as you can, um, just so you can try to combat age-related effects of uh, of muscle loss. So yeah. um, I, I hope that helps. Uh, yeah. Just a few a few things. I Good point. We're not medical doctors. Um I am a professor. I've taught pathophysiology, so let me tell you what I do know. One is atrial fibrillation. And for listeners who aren't familiar, think about the upper chambers of your heart, you know, not quivering necessarily, but they're they're not pulsatile. You know, they're not beating in unison with the rest of the heart as well. And it can cause blood clotting. AFib is also often related to other heart conditions. So you have to be careful. A lot of these guys, because of the clotting risk, they're sometimes on anticoagulant drugs that a lot of people call blood mm-hmm. thinners. Um, so you have to be careful, and that's why John, so Dr. Mike is telling you, check with your doctor, right? Say, listen, I, I'm going to lift. Help, right? Don't just tell me not mm-hmm. to lift because that's going to hurt my long-term health, you know, and um, I'm determined to lift. Work with me here, and if he won't, you know, fire him and go to a doctor who is willing to work with you for your health goals. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and you know, for, for whatever reason, and and maybe this is just tradition or just what people have thought to be the case. um, When it comes to like cardiovascular disease and all these types of conditions, um, I think one of the reasons why people tend to steer away from resistance training with a lot of clinical types of things or diseases is, is because uh, like physiologically and in terms of physiological adaptation, you know, with, with endurance exercise, you don't get, I mean, it's, it's been, um, researched for like decades. I mean, you do get, do you get decreases in, you know, resting heart rate and resting and exercise blood pressure and all that stuff. And so from like a, a cardiovascular perspective between endurance and resistance training, you don't get the increases um, and like BP with endurance exercise as you do with like heavy resistance training. And I, what I mean is somebody who uh, does strength training, you know, four or five days, days a week, you know, with heavier load. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for systolic blood pressure to be 300 plus millimeters of mercury, like, you know, during the set as opposed to endurance exercise. So I think traditionally people tend to steer away from that because they think, well, resistance training is going to, you know, build up pressure, um, you know, in, in, in arterial walls and all that other stuff. But I mean, you can do lighter resistance training work and not really um, have that as much of an effect. So um, I just wanted to, to, to throw that yeah, out there. I like the, I like the, the tip. And again, we're just telling you to consider these things, John, because we're not telling you to go do them, mm-hmm. but Right. The negatives using eccentrics, using negatives, slow lowering of the weight, even with the machine, you can get really sore and and build a lot of muscle doing that stuff with less uh, systemic strain, you know. So now we're going to talk to Kaylee. Kaylee, we're just going to do like normal here. We need to know, right. you know, basically you know, what's your background? What got you into strength training? Where did you come from and, and lead on up to? Right before we get a, uh, you know, basically the topic of the day, which is starting out in the strength and conditioning field. So, how'd you get started okay. lifting? Well, well um, I think I first started lifting uh, just in high school and, you know, your basic weight class my freshman year. And um, I started just, you know, doing classes just kind of for, for fun thing. And 
I realized, you know, I was kind of pushing some heavy weight compared to some of the other girls my age, and it just kind of grew from there, honestly. Uh, I have an uncle who is the head strength and conditioning coach at Baser Linwood High School, Ross Suizo, and he has developed a strength and conditioning, a phenomenal program there, and he actually has a powerlifting team, so his high schoolers go to competitions and they compete, and he was like, hey, you know, you should try this. So my junior year, I did it. I was playing basketball at the time, so I didn't get to go to very many meets and you know beating girls I was doing pretty well and I was like man this is fun so I kept doing that that winter the following winter I well actually first that fall my some the fall in my senior year was when I first went to Phil's gym when back when he was in Lena's garage and trained with him for a little bit and you know he kind of told me the same thing like you know you're good at this like you're strong you know we can get you doing some serious stuff so then I Went into that next winter, I ran indoor track instead of playing basketball, and then I did powerlifting. I went that whole season being undefeated, um, and in high school powerlifting, it's a bench, a squat, and a hang clean, and then you can win off of your power index. So, um, did that, you know, beat a lot of girls, thought it was really fun, but then I went on to <laughs> run track and field in college, so Phil kind of gives me a hard time about that, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went to Northwest Missouri State. Ran track, was a sprinter and a multi, so I did the heptathlon. Uh, loved it, had a lot of fun. Picked up two degrees. Um, one of them was in corporate wellness, and the other one was in therapeutic recreation. So it sounds kind of funny. Corporate wellness was basically like an exercise science degree, and then therapeutic rec was working more um, with special populations like people with disabilities and geriatrics and how to train them and work with them in um, you know kind of the fitness world. So... I really loved it, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with that yet. I played around with both of the degrees and jumped all over. There was one summer that I worked at a camp for people with disabilities, and I really, really liked that. But I wasn't sure if I wanted to make it my career. Um, then the following summer, I actually interned with my uncle, Ross Suizo, at Baser, coaching the high school kids in the weight room. And it was quite fun. Basically went into it just doing it for fun, you know, wasn't really sure if I was going to like it, you know, a bunch of high school kids. I ended up loving it. Um, had so much fun. I learned a lot. Working with high school kids was so much fun. Um, they're so good to just mold. I had a lot of freshmen. Um, I mainly worked with the freshmen, like, dancers, so it was really hard. Uh, <laughs> different kind of group to train, especially weight training. You know, they didn't want to bulk up. They didn't want to do this. They don't want to do curls, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it was just so fun, and that's kind of where it fell into place for me, I think. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Topeka. I went to Shining Heights. Um, now I'm back in Topeka and training with Phil now. So now that I'm done running track, I fell back into the love of doing weightlifting. Um, he's taught me so much about Olympic lifting, so I'm getting a little better at that. And then I'm also doing powerlifting training, too. And that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of what we want to touch on. I mean, when we met, like I said, she was the – you were the person on the powerlifting team. Like, she was yeah, the Shawnee <laughs> <the Shawnee, laughs> powerlifting team, right. which was kind of neat. And then went from there. And then, you know, what What I want to bring on today, which is we'll have to break to the – go to break here and come to the topic of the day. But, um, you know, and now you've recently taken a position. So we'll get into that here in a minute. And just talk to people about, um, you know, starting out in the strength and conditioning field. So – um, Lonnie, we'll go ahead and go to break and hit the commercial here, and then we'll hit that up. So.
Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Fall and soon winter will be upon us. As the holidays approach and your thoughts turn to giving, please consider your friends here at ironradio.org. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio type format, the show is listener supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 per month, you can become a supporting member keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page, or click the donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Thanks for helping to create a place for better internet programming for all strength and muscle sports, and... Happy Holidays! Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's lawnman 7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we are back. 
Again, we got Haley Host- or Kaylee Hostel, and uh, we're going to talk about starting out in you know the strength and conditioning field. Like you talked about before the break, you kind of didn't know what you wanted to do um, when you first came back here this summer. You were working on the physical therapy side with like rebound and interning there, and then you've landed a position at the university here. As the, what's your official title? Sorry, assistant strength coach, I think it is, or uh, graduate assistant. Graduate assistant strength coach. So, and I want to go into that. I mean, just, just kind of how how that came about. What was the like the application process, and then we'll we'll go into the more fun stuff like uh, you know the realization of you know what, what do you like about it, what kind of fits, what doesn't, um, hours, things like that. So, yeah, for Washburn, um, it first started out they were looking to hire an assistant strength coach, and just graduating college, you know, I have just my two undergrad degrees. I don't have my CSCS yet. I hadn't had my USAW. Safe to say I wasn't very qualified at the time, but I still applied, um, didn't really get past HR, probably because they said I was only 22. Anyways, they ended up hiring their graduate assistant, so they called me, and like, hey, you know, we liked your application, would you like to be our grad assistant, or interview for it? So I went in, um, I had to send in my resume again, the cover letter, and then I went in for an interview, and I sat down with the head coach, and then now the new assistant coach, and just went through a basic interview, um, you know, they questioned me on periodization training and hypertrophy and, you know, just some name known people and basically just tested my knowledge and ended up getting the job the next day. Um, I think I kind of walked into it a little bit easier than some other people would have. I got the job pretty late in the game. They were kind of needing a person in the last minute. I know it was just a few of us that they interviewed, but yeah, um, I was, I was kind of lucky. <laughs> I know that <laughs> if I was going to apply for, there was a grad assistant spot at Mizzou, I can imagine the process would have been a little bit harder for sure. Well, I mean, there's something to be said for being at the right place at the right time and just putting yourself out there too. Um, Definitely. Let's go into, I know one of the first realizations that you've had is <laughs> the hours. You know, we've yeah. talked about this. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, well, my day um, it's kind of been a little different. My schedule's been all over the place right now, but I have cheerleaders that come in about 6 or 6.30 in the morning, and that's a couple days a week. And then for a while, I would not have any athletes come in except for a couple of stragglers until 2.30. So, yeah, my day was really early morning, very late at night, um, pretty typical. And now it's kind of shifting a little bit. The tennis is going into an off-season, and golf is starting up in their off-season. So I'll have golf um, at... 7 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I'll have tennis and cheer at 5 and 6 in the morning on the other two days, and then I'll also have some tennis kids that come in at, like, 1. So <laughs> I definitely have that early morning, a little later in the day, not quite as late as it could be, um, but it, it can make for a long day, definitely. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about. I mean, even in, in, the, in the private sector or the university, this and that, you're usually at the... Uh, your hours are at the whim of everybody else, you know, right. at the that university is. level, you know, the, the strength coach at the university level is like, it comes after, after the sport, mm-hmm. after the, this and that, it's like, we're going to fit you in where we have to. Yeah. So you, you kind of get like those before and after hours or in between classes. And so, Hey, let me ask <laughs> just quickly then, uh, is there any frustration that you're around weights all the time, but sometimes it's hard to actually get to them yourself? Or do you feel like, you get lots of time to actually grab the barbells. 
Oh, my gosh. I went through, and I mean, Phil can vouch for this, there was like two weeks that I only came in, you know, a handful of times. And, yeah, I mean, my family makes money. They're like, you're getting kind of cranky. I think you need to go into strength guilt. Like, <laughs> and it was. It was just because I couldn't come in in the morning because I had kids coming in, and then I wasn't able to get there in the afternoon because I had tennis group until 6 or 6.30, and it can, it was kind of frustrating. And there was a few days, you know, I can lift at Washburn during my downtime, so that is nice if I already know the program pretty much set up that Phil has us rolling on. I was able to do some lifts there, um, mainly just my powerlifting stuff. I don't really like to do my Olympic lifting there. They don't have the female bar. I'm kind of turning into a 33-pound bar snob. <laughs> so, um, Washburn's in Kansas, correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, how, uh, I have a question for you. Do you um, do you guys uh, have a relationship, or what type of relationship do you have with the uh, exercise science department or kinesiology department there? You know what? Um, it doesn't seem like there's a lot. I wish there was because I've heard great things about their kinesiology program, and they have groups that kind of come into the weight room and use equipment for like this and that for five minutes here and there. But I've <laughs> never met any of the professors. Um, well, I know well. I have a lot of athletes that are in the program. So, but we don't really correlate with them hands-on that much. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm just asking because uh, I'm I'm over here at uh, Lindenwood University, um, just right in oh, St. Yeah. Louis area, and we have a really good relationship with all, with all the strength coaches, and um, a few of them have, have taught um, some classes, and one of them does the yeah, the exam prep for the CSCS, and um, and I have a lot of athletes in my classes, and I go in there, you know, all the time, and sometimes I'll train in there, but I usually don't just so I can get away from work, but yeah, I, I, I would really like to see on the whole just more, even, a, you know, bigger schools or even like, you know, smaller schools just have the exercise science, you know, kinesiology program, just have a better relationship with the strength coaches because there's just so much collaboration and ideas and projects that, that could be done and can really help out the students. True, yeah. Definitely. Well, and for me, just coming out of college, I mean, I'm still learning so much. You know, I feel like I have my head in the textbook if I'm not coaching. And, yeah, it would be great to have that relationship with those professors, you know, pick their brain in their downtime or ask them for references on articles and such and such. So, yeah, it's a, that'd be a very good thing. You know, if I can <laughs> if I can add something real quick, just this is because I just – encountered this is um we had a listener ask about what books i should study and you know because you're mentioning studying mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh he's like i know you guys say go for the textbooks but then the list of books that were presented to me as here's what i've been reading i'm not saying they're poor but in in my estimation they're not textbooks and so sometimes i'm just surprised at how rarely people whether it's the strength coaches or even the local community they don't tap the professors like you know, if you're next to a university, you know there's a strength conditioning program. Sometimes you can just get on their website and ask a professor, you know, about, hey, I have a, a situation. Uh, you're an expert. Sometimes the marketing department, even at smaller schools, will facilitate that. Mm-hmm. They want their experts, their professors, to lend some info, right? And so we yeah, have so lot, many people. It's, like, it's the same thing with nutrition, right? It's like, I mean, whenever they get somebody – like on the TV media, they'll just they'll just um, you know get out a, a local like MD you know or physician and ask about like nutrition stuff you yeah. know and I'm just like you yeah. know tap tap the people at your local in a, you know universities that are actually like nutrition professors. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I know another thing that we kind of talked about too is your realization that um not every athlete, not every team is like you and driven. <laughs> 
to, to, to want to be in the weight room. And that's, that's one thing you've had to deal with. And, uh, I remember what was it? I forget the quote that you said, like you had a girl walk up to you and you were like, just try harder <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I but, and I mean, not to stereotype the cheer team, but that's kind of where I run into that the most. Uh, they do, you know, they, they don't really care so much about how much weight they're throwing around or what they do when they're with me. And I ran into that. And, um, being a female strength coach, uh, sometimes it has its disadvantages when it comes to that, you know, authority thing. I don't, I'm not some big, you know, meaty guy. I'm not very intimidating. I'm like, you know, I really put my foot down and I've learned that I definitely need to do that. And, um, patience has been a big thing for me. And I do, I, I have some girls and they're like, Kaylee, like, I just, and I don't, I don't know. I don't want to. And I'm like, just do it. Just try hard and just do yeah. it. I mean, you're in here yes. for an hour. Get in, get out, do your work. Um, definitely, definitely ran into that. My tennis team, not so much. They do pretty well. Um, I've had to snap them a couple of times, but they're one of those groups that they, they really want to get better and they like to work hard. And um, I don't really have a whole lot of experience with tennis. This is my first go around and I just fell in love with them. They are just such awesome athletes and they are a group of people that are really wanting to work hard and get better at their sport. So that makes it fun. And then um, I'll find well, out. I was going to say on that one too. It sounds like, and this is a good topic to go into. You have a you have a good relationship with the tennis coach. He yes. seems very interested in the strength side of it, yes. um, which I think is is big when you're talking strength coaching. Is and that's coming from you know if you're dealing with athletes on like I'm dealing with baseball players, things like that. It can be mm-hmm. huge if they have a a sport coach that is actually into them doing strength and conditioning whereas you have another sport you were kind of telling me about where well they don't want them squatting they don't want them pressing they don't want and it's like pretty much we get to walk around and do about some balls yeah yeah Uh, exactly so you know dealing with you know having a relationship with the sport coach is a good thing too um so you know phil that brings up a good point that why we need strength coaches. I mean, I can't tell you how many head coaches I've talked to, they handle the strength conditioning, mm-hmm. you know, for their teams, either because there's not strength staff around or because they just, they're like, I'm the head coach and I know, uh, you know, I don't fix what's not broke. And they don't, they have no idea about topics like Kaylee was talking about periodization, you know, the recovery mm-hmm. issues, hypertrophy, all this stuff. You know, when do you do this? Mm-hmm. What are the goals mid season versus off season? And um, mm-hmm. uh, even in nutrition, I can tell you, I, I over the years as a sports nutritionist at at a D1 school, I was like, hey, I better meet with the coaches first so we're on the same page so I can almost mm-hmm. sell the expertise a little. And I'm not saying something to the team that counters something ignorant that they might be saying, you know. And so you don't yeah. end up headbutting with the coach, you know. And that's the thing. That's what I'm kind of getting at. The coach can be your – it could be your best friend or worst enemy. You might get that coach that that knows nothing about strength and conditioning, but has very is very opinionated on it. Yeah, yeah, you know? right. Yeah, and yeah. we don't, we don't want them lifting anything heavy at all. We don't want them blah 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 blah. You know, and gives you a list of here's what you can't do, and then you're left with nothing you can do. You know, yeah. so um, well, and it's funny to mention that some coaches do the strength and conditioning. Well, the tennis coach he actually used to do tennis strength and conditioning for his team um, back at a previous school he coached at. So I think he has an he has an appreciation for me because he knows, you know, I can send you to them. I know that they're doing some, something right. And um, yeah. I think that him having to do it before helped 
um, him appreciate me more. Yeah. So, I don't know what else we got, guys. Well, Kaylee already things. brought up the female issue. Uh, when we have oh, yeah. we've had MC yeah. Powers on, you know, she was she's a now a, one of the full time strength coach staff here at, at Kent State, a local university here, and uh, she has a similar background actually as you do kaylee i have to get you guys to chat with each oh, other because cool. the stuff that she tells yeah. me over a beer is like everything you're saying the frustrations the hours mm-hmm. you know the challenges of being a, a smaller woman you know where you don't have that like you said meaty alpha male kind of presence where you walk in a room and the the team will just listen to you kind of you know yeah <laughs> you know that that sort well, of thing well, um, Andrea Hootie, she is a strength conditioning coach at KU, um, big yep. idol of mine, and I've met her a couple times, and yeah, she's just one of those women, you know, she walks in, she's got that look on her face, and you can just tell she's she's there for business, and um, that's something that I need to aspire to work on. Uh, she's just a very good um, idol for a female strength coach to look up to and you know, be like her, honestly. <laughs> yeah. What about the positive side, though? Do you see advantages of being a woman in the strength field? Is there a niche for you? Like, do the the, the women's teams respond to you better? Stuff like that. Definitely. Definitely. Um, it, it definitely has its pros. The female, the girl side, uh, my women's tennis team, they are awesome. They really come to me. They'll come in and sit down about, you know, personal issues with their body, um, their hormones, such and such. And I think that, and they've even said, you know, if this was a, a male strength coach, they wouldn't feel as comfortable. They also have a male head coach. So having me on the side, knowing that, you know, I can relate to them and I've been there, done that as a female um, collegiate athlete, it helps so much. And I also think being a collegiate athlete in general has helped me relate mm, to my athletes yeah. a lot more. Um, just because, like I said, I've been there, done that. I know the mental toughness it takes, the physical toughness with school and all the stress that comes with it. But um, being able to relate to my girl teams definitely helps a lot. Um, even with my guys, you know, they, they're they pretty comfortable around me. They, you know, sometimes they'll say something and I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry. Like, you know, because, you know, I'm a girl and I'm like, it doesn't, you know, it's not any different. We're all people here. So, uh, but being able to relate to my girl athletes, I really appreciate. It makes it very fun for me being able to help them on a personal level. Um, and it's, it's awesome, you know, nutrition is something that I'm learning a lot and that I really like. And for them to come to me um, and feel comfortable talking about nutrition and their weight right. also is a big, big plus for sure. Yeah, I've known some uh, very successful male coaches. I'm thinking of a track coach in, in particular. Obviously, I'm not going to name any names, but uh, the way he treated his his girls was abominable to me. I was shocked as a professional. He's like, I'd get their fat asses on a scale every day, you know, and he put them up. He, I'm not kidding. That's what he said. That, that's what he said. And, and where he said, you know, talk to this one. I need to know what eating disorder she's got. And he would confront her like that. Like what eating disorder you got aside from the poor grammar. That's just not how you do it. That's not how you do it. And he had no rapport on that level. And I think they all lived in fear. So you saw stuff like dehydration to make the weights that he wanted, you know, and it, it was – and sometimes that's part of sports. I get that, but not not in this way, you know. And like you're saying, I, I could see someone coming to you and saying, you know, I've, I've lost a lot of weight. It was unintentional. Uh, I, I don't know. I missed my period. Is that because I'm overtraining? You know, that sort of thing that, that mm-hmm. could be helpful. I yeah. Think. Yeah. You know, you know, when I was a collegiate athlete and I had a head – male coach for track and then our assistant coach was a female and you know for that kind of issue you're gonna you're gonna go towards your female coach so 
definitely that personal stuff. Um, weight. I mean, I've as a strength coach for my female athletes, weight to me, I don't put them on a scale. Um, it's how they feel. Um, when it comes to being a female athlete, if you are worried about what's on the scale, then you're never going to make any progress and you're just going to stress yourself out. So I always tell them, you know, we're going to work to where you are at a weight where you feel comfortable, where you feel the most athletic, where you feel powerful, where you feel like you can be swift on the court, that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't have them stressed about what's on the scale for sure. I mean, that's not, that's not healthy for them. I personally, that's how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned, um, Male versus female teams, or even just different sports, you said they respond differently. It, to me, it's always interesting to talk to collegiate strength coaches as opposed to mm-hmm. – not that Phil doesn't re- delve into the athletic stuff a lot, but, I mean, as far as that kind of university environment, are there some teams that just have a certain culture? Like some groups are the partiers. Some are, you know, always getting after it. Or like some there's gentleman sports, you know what I mean? as opposed to the right. sports that are a little bit more crude. And again, it's not the Phil doesn't encounter this. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I'm assuming when people go to Strength Guild, there's some level of motivation. And with you, they might be in front of you and, like, not even want to be there. They're just there because they have to be. I don't know. Oh, no, definitely. Um, well, you know, you have your football team. Uh, big, macho, you know, we play football stereotype. Um, they come in and they, you know, they're kind of loud and they throw around the weight for sure. They have that... Um, big tough man mentality to them and you know sometimes they try and act you know a little cooler you know not so much showy but um they're definitely a different environment when they come in compared to say like our men's basketball team they come in and they're very loud um they're very hyped up you know they're singing they're having some fun you know they're high-fiving they're kind of getting into their mode a little bit more as to say um they just have that hype to them you know and then, you know, compared to my men's tennis team, they come in and they're kind of more chill and relaxed. They definitely work really hard um, when they're in the squat rack and when they're actually doing their moves. You know, they're very focused. They love to ask questions. They want to make sure they're doing everything right. They're very they, – they, they like me to nitpick them, you know, as opposed to maybe like our basketball team or our football team. They don't really care so much about how they're doing it so much as maybe how much weight they're putting on. And uh, that's just me personally working with the tennis team. They kind of have that – more of that drive, but then when, you know, when they're not in their squat rack, they're a little more relaxed. They're talking to each other. They're, you know, motivating each other, and they're having a little bit more fun. They're also a smaller team, so that makes it easier. And, you know, I only have eight guys compared to the men's basketball team. There's a JV and a varsity, so you put that together, and you have almost 50 guys. So there's definitely that difference between teams. You can feel the vibes kind of shift depending on who's in the weight room. Our um, women's softball team, they work really hard, but they've also had their days. So they come in and they're tired, and you can tell like they're not as motivated. They're not pushing as hard today, but they've also had mornings where I walk in and they are just getting after it and working really hard, and the music's pumping and they're slamming med balls. And um, but you can just definitely tell the vibes that go on. And when I just know personally, when I was lifting with my track team, you know, there we would have our mornings where we just weren't feeling it. You know, we're speed squatting, we're pushing prowlers, and we're just like not having the day. But you know, when you kind of can get that hype and you pump each other up and you get some music going, and you can make the flow work really fast and really well. And I was blessed. I had a really good team that worked hard and loved to be in the weight room. So we could definitely get a really good vibe going um, and bounce our energy off of each other. So you can definitely tell between sports on who's in there and who's not. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. My, I just want to, uh, <laughs> one more question, but um, do you, do you work with swimming at all? Oh. No, Washburn actually does not have a swim team. Okay. That's, that's a sport that I have been curious about working with. Um, 
they're training, you know, every, it's just, they're so, they're so much different. They're quite, they're quite the athlete, honestly. And, um, uh, I've kind of done a little bit of digging and they, their training is kind of based how I was trained as a multi, you know, they need to be all around, you, you know, mm-hmm. the, you have your focus, do you, but do you find, I mean, what are you uh, talking to, um, and knowing other like sport coaches, I mean, what do you, what do you find with their, just kind of their knowledge base is in terms of just, you know, exercise or even just things with basic techniques of exercises. And, and it's a little bit different depending on where you go. But, um, I mean, what, what is your experience with like just dealing with the sport coaches? Um, it kind of depends on the person. I've had a couple of sport coaches, like I said, that are just phenomenal, you know, they kind of know what their team needs, but they also respect that I know what they need also, and we can kind of collaborate and put that together. But I've also dealt with a couple coaches where they might not have quite the knowledge that they think they do. They think they know what's best for their their team and their athletes, when in reality, you know, they could actually be doing something a little bit different. They're just scared or they don't want them to be sore. They don't want them to get hurt. So they're kind of tiptoeing around, you know, they want them in the weight room, but they don't want them actually – doing anything where they could risk any kind of injury or any kind of soreness where it could affect how they are playing or performing when they're doing their sport. So it kind of just depends. Um, Some of the younger coaches, I can say, um, maybe have a little bit more of that knowledge, I think, because now, like, I can vouch for this being in school. um, You're taught. I was taught so much more about just my degree. You know, I dipped into nutrition. I dipped into exercise phys and biomechanics and strength and conditioning, FMS testing, all of that stuff. So I just think that school maybe now is a little bit more well-rounded to where I left and I had a base knowledge of just a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good gotcha. question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I have one. I think we're right. Before we wrap up, uh, I've been telling people that we'll take tweets during the show. And oh, yeah. uh, this is our first tweet from Jake. So before we go, I'm just going to offer this. Now, my hope is that these will be conversational with the topic of the day. This one is a little bit more just um, it's not necessarily on this topic, but I wanted to address this quickly. This week on Twitter. It's sort of a nutrition issue. And Jake said, uh, I'm six foot 220. I'm 20% body fat. I eat 150 to 180 grams of protein a day. Uh, he's concerned that his creatinine levels might be a little high. His blood creatinine is 95 to 110% of maximum, and I think he wants to know why. And I just wanted to offer something very quickly. Uh, Jake, if, a lot of times you, you will see lifters with high, high normal or even slightly above normal creatinine. I think you have to be careful. We are talking about like um, – you know, like when Dr. Mike said, sometimes the local news will ask a physician something, and a physician might tell you, well, we use creatinine as a marker of renal function, you know, of kidney function. Um, the same goes for BUN, blood urea nitrogen. I think it's important to understand that lifters are not gen pop in this way, and I'm not saying that there's absolutely not a problem with your kidneys, but I really doubt it. Um, if you take creatine, for example, it will convert in an irreversible reaction into creatinine. So you can have elevated creatinines like that. It's not because your kidneys are poor filtering. It's just because you're taking creatinine. And the same thing can be said of muscle tissue. Creatinine comes from muscle mass. Uh, oftentimes also more nitrogen in your blood spilling out of that additional muscle mass. 
Um, Haley, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think it was a good show. That's kind of what we wanted. Just kind of everybody get a feel for, you know, starting out and, you know, your background and what you got going on. So, Doing Cleats is definitely a good experience, but there's nothing like working with high schoolers and being able to mold them from start to finish. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's fun. All right, cool stuff. Yeah. All right, guys, I'm out of here. All righty. Okay, thanks Later. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.